hello there. This is Stuart Haynes, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. And we've got another fantastic episode today. We have been experimenting with a new podcast format, one that we hope is more interactive and engaging. So let's get started. Um, here's two observations that I think are intuitively obvious, but which evidence clearly supports. First, the benefits that can be derived from medications are directly related to adherence. And while perfect medication adherence is not always required, as the old saying goes, medications don't work unless you take them. And second, the more complex a medication regimen becomes, the more difficult and costly it is for patients to take medications in an optimal manner. And I believe this has become a very significant challenge as people live longer with multiple chronic diseases, each of which requires one or two or three and sometimes more medications, resulting in a patient often taking eight, 10, and I've seen patients taking as many as 20 plus medications a day, which leads to medication taking fatigue. Combination products are one way to reduce pill burden, and some have advocated for the creation of a, quote, poly pill that can address multiple cardiovascular risks. And indeed, the data suggests that combination products do result in lower blood pressure and lipids. Uh, previous studies simply haven't been large enough or long enough to determine if a poly pill can improve cardiovascular outcomes until now. The International Polycap Study 3, or which goes by the acronym TIPS3, was recently published in November 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And here to talk about the TIPS3 study are Ebony Evans, Kathleen Pincus, and Sarah Wettergreen. Dr. Evans is the PGY2 Ambulatory Care Pharmacy Practice resident at the University of Maryland, and Dr. Pincus is her residency program director. Katie wears many hats, so she's also a clinical pharmacy specialist in family medicine and a full-time member of the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy faculty. And together, Ebony and Katie wrote a commentary about the TIPS3 study, which we posted on the iFormerX website. And joining them is Dr. Sarah Wettergreen from the University of Colorado, who not only peer-reviewed this commentary, but has a strong interest in patient education and medication adherence. So, so Katie and Sarah, it's so good to have you back on the iFormerX podcast. And Ebony, it's great to have you here as a first-time contributor. Welcome. Thanks for having us on to talk about this trial today, Stuart. Hi, Stuart. It's great to be back. Hi, I'm really happy to be here for the first time. Looking forward to the opportunity. So, Sarah, obviously, adherence to medications is complex and involves multiple factors, not just pill burden, and all of these can influence a patient's medication-taking behavior. What are some of the key factors that influence medication adherence? And during an encounter with a patient, what are some of the things that you do to sort out what factors might be influencing a patient's motivation or ability to take a medication in an optimal manner? Yes, Stuart, that's completely right. There are many potential factors involved in medication adherence beyond pill burden or having a complex medication regimen. 
This could include patient-related factors such as negative perceptions of medications or an underlying condition like depression or cognitive impairment that could limit the patient's ability to adhere to medications. It could also be that the care provider did not explain the purpose of the medication or did not use shared decision-making when selecting therapy. We know that shared decision-making can support medication adherence, so not using these principles could also play a role. Certainly, the cost of medications is another important consideration. In my clinical practice, I make it a habit to ask every patient about medication adherence in a non-judgmental way. I understand that taking medications routinely is difficult, as even myself as a pharmacist can have trouble with this sometimes. So asking about adherence in that open-ended manner can be helpful. Once I identify that medication adherence is an issue for a patient, I start by asking them what makes it difficult for them to take their medications regularly. For some, it might be as simple of a solution as using a pillbox or moving their medications to a location where it's easier for them to remember to take them, such as moving from one area of their room to a different room or at the table where they eat their meals. For others, there may be other complex factors to address. One tool that I like to use is called the Beliefs About Medications Questionnaire. And this is something I find helpful in my practice and that I think pharmacists can use to better understand a patient's views on how medications benefit them, as well as the patient's concerns with using medications. Once I understand these beliefs and these concerns, I can provide additional education about medications or potentially find some ways to modify their therapy so that their regimen does align with their beliefs and their preferences overall. This could include using medications that are commonly available in combination therapy to limit things like pill burden. So Katie, in the commentary you wrote for iFormerX, you reviewed the study entitled Polypill with and without aspirin in persons without cardiovascular disease. And, and we provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website. But can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and the key findings? So TIPS-3 was designed to assess whether treatment with a polypill, either alone or with aspirin, reduced the incidence of ASCBD events among people without ASCBD. Um, it was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial with a two-by-two -two factorial design and multiple comparisons, which makes it a little difficult to follow all the different parts, um, all the different study groups that were included. There were four separate randomized comparisons within the trial, polypill versus placebo, aspirin versus placebo, and polypill plus aspirin combined versus a double placebo. There was also an analysis about vitamin D versus placebo, but that wasn't included in the paper that was published, which we reviewed. Participants included men over 50 years old and women over 55 years old without known clinical ASCBD, but with an inner heart risk score indicating intermediate to high ASCBD risk. An interesting part of the study was they did use a run-in phase where they provided um, potential participants with a low-dose poly pill and had them take that for a couple weeks. And then they excluded the participants from randomization if they had side effects, if their adherence was less than 80%, or if, you know, after starting the trial, the participant decided they didn't want to continue. Baseline characteristics were similar between groups. Most of the enrollment you know, a little bit less than half occurred in India. 
Um, the mean age of participants was 64 years, a little over half were female, and 84% did have elevated blood pressure at baseline, though the average systolic blood pressure was about 145 millimeters of mercury. And less than 40% had diabetes or elevated blood glucose at baseline, and less than 18% were smokers. The primary outcome that they looked at for both the polypill and the polypill plus aspirin comparisons was a composite of major cardiovascular events, so death from cardiovascular causes, stroke, MI, heart failure, resuscitated cardiac arrest, revascularization. Um, and then the primary composite for the aspirin analysis was death from cardiovascular causes, MI, or stroke, so a little bit different than the other two analyses. And what they found was that only the combination treatment resulted in a statistically significant reduction in the primary outcome, though all three interventions did show positive trends. So in that combined analysis of polypill with aspirin versus placebo, 5.8% of participants in the placebo group experienced an event compared to 4.1% in the polypill plus aspirin group. It is kind of important to note that the authors stated that their analysis was not adjusted for multiplicity, um, so that we shouldn't use the confidence, the width of the confidence intervals to infer definitive treatment effects. Um, just a little stats thing to consider. And some other things to note, they did find smaller than expected reductions in both blood pressure and LDL, um, which may have led to less robust differences from placebo than maybe they were expecting. They also had a slightly shorter enrollment period than they were expecting. And more participants in the polypill plus aspirin group discontinued the trial because of side effects, mostly, mostly dizziness and hypotension, not major bleeding, which was certainly something I was looking for when reading this trial. So Ebony, this was a pretty complex trial with multiple randomizations to several different treatment arms. And I'm wondering what you believe are the strengths and potential weaknesses of the study and if there are potential sources of bias or confounders that you think might have impacted the results. So I would say I think the biggest strength of this trial is that it's the third trial in the polypill study series. So it's building off of a lot of data and results that have already been established previously. And it's also using the same polycap formulation, albeit at a higher dose, that they used in the first two trials. So I think that's the biggest strength there is that it's it's building on existing data already. And there was a study question posed from those first two trials that it set out to look at if they would reduce the incidence of cardiovascular events amongst people that didn't have ASCVD, as opposed to only looking at a reduction of risk factors individually like blood pressure or LDL levels. I would say some of the weaknesses that stood out to me was that um, enrollment of low or only moderate risk patients, I thought might have been a, a weakness just because it may have actually underestimated some of the potential benefit of the polypill. Um, they also mentioned specifically that COVID-19, of course, um, impacted conduction of the trial. So mean follow-up duration, ability of participants to get study medications and things of that nature were limited due to pandemic forced restrictions. So um, out of their control, but I do think that that's a weakness that should be mentioned. Um, in terms of bias, the authors did highlight that one of the significant limitations of non-adherence um, could create a selection bias in the data. So when, when they did their run-in phase, they made sure that they kind of assessed patients and 
And anybody who had an adherence level below 80% was not included in the actual randomization of the trial. So that could be seen as a selection bias, especially when we're looking at a polypill and adherence is one of the benefits we think it can pose to our patients. If we are limiting patients that have already established that they're not adherent, we're kind of missing a little bit of a patient population that would have been nice to see how they fare on this medication here. I might also add that when Ebony and I were writing this commentary, we had a lot of discussion of the medications that went into the polypill and a lot of scratching our heads about why is there a beta blocker that everybody is getting? And is simvastatin 40 the statin that we would give to our moderate risk patients if we saw them in clinic? And I think the construction of the polypill itself, the composition might also be seen as a limitation. So Sarah, the TIP study investigators looked at a number of different outcomes, including surrogate markers like systolic blood pressure, heart rate, LDL cholesterol, as well as adverse major cardiovascular events and medication-related adverse events. Um, So what do you feel are the most compelling findings from the study? Are any of the findings worrisome or concerning? There were a few key points I took away from this study. First, I was surprised by some of the results related to those surrogate markers you mentioned. Across groups, the baseline blood pressure was about 144 over 84. And after using the polypill, which you've heard contains ramipril 10 milligrams, hydrochlorothiazide 25 milligrams, and atenolol 100 milligrams, the mean difference in systolic blood pressure was about 6 millimeters of mercury lower. This means that for most patients, their systolic blood pressure remained above 130, and this is still above the goal we use for most patients per the 2017 ACC-AHA Multi-Society Hypertension Guidelines. This also seems like a modest decrease in blood pressure given the use of a three-drug regimen, And I think this could potentially be influenced by the specific medications included in the polypill, such as atenolol. The baseline LDL for patients in the study was 120 milligrams per deciliter on average. After using the polypill containing simvastatin 40, the mean difference in LDL was 19 milligrams per deciliter, leading to a mean LDL of about 100. This decrease is not within the 30 to 49% LDL decrease that I would anticipate from a moderate intensity statin therapy, and I'm really not certain why this expected decrease was not achieved. Although the decreases in blood pressure and LDL were more modest than I anticipated, there remained a trend toward lower cardiovascular events based on the primary outcome occurring in 4.4% of patients in the polypill group to 5.5% of patients in the placebo group. Another point I found interesting was related to the side effect profile. There seemed to be some nocebo effect that occurred in this study. There were a good number of patients in the placebo group who stopped the study due to concerns for dizziness, hypotension, and cough, although this rate was still higher in those taking polypill. Contrastingly, there were actually more patients in the placebo group than in the treatment group that discontinued the trial due to reported muscle pain. This is in alignment with what we know and we commonly see related to statin-related nocebo effects. So let's talk about the application of these findings to clinical practice. Are these data sufficiently compelling for you to change your practice? Should we routinely consider 
the use of combination products when available to treat chronic illnesses like cardiovascular disease and diabetes? And if so, when, under what circumstances, would you recommend using a combination product? Bottom line, should we be using combination products more often? I think the idea of a polypill brings a lot of promise, you know, lower pill burdens, less complexity of regimen, and potentially a lower cost. Um, the pill that they used in this study, they quoted as being about $15 a month um, in U.S. dollars. This could be a really big win for patients who can't afford care or can't access care. They talk in the study about using this in areas of the world where patients don't get to see doctors regularly, that don't have access to other medications, or monitoring that we would often recommend when we're putting patients on other kind of evidence-driven approaches, especially since this trial really showed a pretty low rate of side effects um, in this kind of general population of patients with moderate ASCBD risk. Some disadvantages, though, is I think that it's really hard to titrate polypills. It's really hard to tailor to specific patient needs. You know, what if there's a side effect to one of the medications? It's kind of hard to break it apart. In this study, they had some alternative versions of the polypill that dropped the ACE inhibitor, but they didn't replace that with an ARB. They just had one less medication in that formulation. And they had a formulation that was about half the, half the dose of all the blood pressure medicines. Um, but again, that's a, a kind of one-size-fits-all approach, which could be difficult for some patients um, who do experience either side effects or who have, you know, their cholesterol remains high or their blood pressure remains high and you want to do additional titrations. So I don't know that I would use a pill like this regularly in my own practice, where I think my patients generally have access to other medications that we consider standard of care. But I do think that there's a role for this globally, and potentially a role for patients who, you know, really are having a hard time with the complex regimens that we're giving them. And I think that I would add to that, I think the benefit of a polypill in regards to reducing ASCVD events is, is pretty clear in this trial. But I do think, like Katie said, one of the biggest opportunities for benefit with a polypill is providing for more underserved populations due to the low cost and patients that have, you know, poor access to healthcare or live in areas with large health disparities. I think there's a really big area for something like this to provide care to those patients. Um, however, I do think the specific composition of the pill may not be ideal. And it's unlikely to be used the way that it is regularly in our clinics, especially with our more high-risk patients. But I do think that this trial and this specific polypill can be used as a really good stepping stone towards finding a more beneficial combination of medications that can still confer benefit to our underserved populations, but may also have more benefit for our high-risk populations as well. I completely agree with both of you. While the concept of a polypill is certainly interesting and promising, especially in those underserved areas with limited access to care, as Ebony mentioned, my biggest concern with applying the results of the TIPS-3 study in my practice is that this approach does not seem to take patient preferences into account since the treatment is standardized for everyone who receives it. Just as Katie mentioned, there's limited ability to adjust therapy or titrate a single medication using that polypill. And with the shift in practice towards shared decision-making and knowing that shared decision-making is also a method that can increase medication adherence, I'm not really sure where this approach would fit in for me. 
if there was a way to create a customized polypill, I would certainly be more interested in using that in my practice. Ebony, Katie, Sarah, um, many thanks to all of you for joining me today to discuss the use of combination products and the results of the TIPS-3 study. Well, what do you think? Should we use combination products more often, particularly products that treat two or more related disease states? What combination products do you use routinely in your practice? Only iFormerX members can leave comments, so if you are not a member of iFormerX, be sure to sign up today. Any health professional, including students pursuing a degree in pharmacy, medicine, or nursing are welcome to join iFormerX. It's free. And if you'd like to earn continuing education and board recertification credit for listening to this podcast and reading the commentary posted on the iFormerX website, check out the American Pharmacists Association's Ambulatory Care Board Prep and Recertification Program. We've partnered with APHA to make select content available for recertification credit for ambulatory care pharmacy specialists. So just click on the link below the commentary on the iFormerX website to learn more. And lastly, I wanna thank Jennifer Clements from Spartanburg Regional Healthcare System for her many contributions to iFormerX. Jennifer maintains our obesity and weight management page. She's co-authored several commentaries participated in podcasts, and was a presenter during one of our fall webinars. And Jennifer is also a member of our editorial board and provides critical feedback on our editorial direction. So thank you, Jennifer, for the many, many ways you've helped iFormerX become a thriving community of practice. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.